Prestige heads and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with Derek Davison. And there's a lot going on in the world this week as there is every week. And that's why you all listen to American Prestige, no doubt. But before we get into it, please remember to subscribe on Substack. Um, If you're a paid listener, your um, uh, free subscription will be running out soon. So just be sure to, to move on over so you don't miss any of our awesome episodes. We've got a lot of cool episodes coming up in the next few weeks that we would hate for anyone to miss. So again, thank you very much for your support. We really appreciate it over here at the American Prestige Foreign Affairs Desk. But why don't we just get into it, Derek? And uh, why don't we give our weekly update on what's going on in Ukraine? So yeah, we can start, I guess, with uh, the Russian decision uh, as of Wednesday to cut off uh, natural gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria. Uh, Gazprom has turned off the tap because those countries are refusing to participate in one of the uh, schemes that the Russian government has proposed to allow them to pay in rubles. So these are uh, they've offered, I guess, a couple of options to their European customers. Either they can pay directly in rubles if they want, uh, or they can open up an account at Gazprom's dedicated bank, Gazprom Bank, uh, and deposit euros or dollars or whatever their deals with uh, Gazprom are denominated in. And Gazprom Bank will do the currency exchange for them. This is a way to inject some hard currency into Russia and to boost the value of the ruble uh, in the wake of uh, Western sanctions. It's a significant move. Just to put it in perspective, um, the gas has been flowing uh, almost in an uninterrupted way from Russia. Russia since the Soviet times. It's also probably a violation of the the agreements <laughs> that Gazprom has with these countries or with their, these countries' gas companies. Uh, but that doesn't really matter when you control the gas supply. You kind of get to dictate terms, I guess, in a situation like he this. He who controls the gas supply controls the world. That's right. That's right. So uh, Poland and Bulgaria have been among the countries that have refused to uh, take one of the either of these steps. There have been several that have apparently started paying in rubles or going through Gazprom Bank, including, I think, Germany. But so Poland and Bulgaria were cut off, um, partly, I think, as a message to other countries that may be thinking about, you know, not participating in the ruble program, uh, partly because they're relatively low-hanging fruit. They're not huge customers. And partly because, paradoxically, this is probably going to lead to more uh, revenue for the Russians because the threat of further gas cuts sent gas prices spiking uh, on Wednesday and thereby, you know, increased the the amount of money that Russia will be paid for its future uh, gas sales. So maybe, Derek, you could just give a little bit of your thoughts, uh, give a few of your thoughts about about what you think the role that energy has played in the Ukraine crisis so far, particularly in terms of international relations and how other nations have been reacting to Russia. Um, I heard someone say the other day that India, you know, is kind of like just okay with it because now gas prices are cheap or energy prices are cheap rather. And I was just wondering, do you have a general understanding of, of the role energy has played in this crisis? Uh, I mean, it's played a couple of different roles. On the European front, I think uh, it's undermined Western sanctions quite a bit. There was a piece, um, I can't remember where it was yesterday, uh, uh, laying out 
you know, what's happened since the invasion began. And Russian energy revenues have basically doubled uh, since the war started, or nearly doubled since the war started. So that that undercuts a lot of the pain that uh, I think Western sanctions were were meant to impose. Um, outside of Europe, yeah, there's been, I mean, I think the Russians have used, you know, turn, they've turned around and said, well, we're not, you know, we're not selling as much energy to Europe now, or, you know, we have these surpluses we could sell to countries like India, China, um, elsewhere at a cut, you know, at something of a discount. Uh, which is good diplomacy and, you know, may, uh, also as a way to bring in some revenue. So, uh, yeah, I think they've, they've used it to kind of soften, uh, the impact to some extent in, uh, broadly speaking, the global South, uh, which hasn't been all that enthusiastic for a variety of reasons about kind of jumping on the U.S. European bandwagon here. But that, that I think is, uh, one piece of that story. Can we maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think we have before about the Global South's reaction to this, because that, that's my sense as well, that they, they're really not on the Western NATO-US side. And Could you explain why that is or what it seems like, what types of relationship they seem to be developing with Russia or really anything you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 not their fight, basically. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of countries, especially across Africa uh, and the Middle East, um, increasingly, you know, through... Uh, not just Central Asia, which has you know long been a, a kind of Russian back backyard, but uh, more broadly speaking, uh, they have relationships with Russia that that you know have nothing to do with this conflict. They're they're buying food, although that's now been you know very badly affected. We can talk about that in a bit uh, by the war. But they've been buying energy. They're you know courting Russian weapon sales or uh, support from the Russian military and or. Uh, the you know notorious Wagner Group private military firm, which is sort of a quasi uh, arm of the Russian military in in some ways. Um, so I mean they, they've got their own reasons for wanting to have a, a good relationship with Russia and not spoil that over a war that I think you know for many of these countries just don't see it as as part as their problem or their issue. You can couple that with it was I think uh you know Quincy Institute's Trita Parsi wrote a wrote a uh, a really good kind of uh burner on this and at uh for MSNBC several days ago. Couple that with the experience that a lot of countries in the global south have had under the uh unipolar moment which has not been terribly great. Uh, and you know, they're not inclined to jump on board when the United States starts waving around the rules-based international order because the United States hasn't demonstrated that it gives a shit about the rules-based international order except, uh, when it serves U.S. aims. So I think there's, there's some of that here, uh, you know, involved in that as well. And that's really interesting to me because it raises complexities about, you know, people in, in the American left, they often say, listen, listen to people abroad. But the question is, who are you listening to? When are you listening to? And there's no clear demarcation or really criterion for who to listen to and when without a, a, an international left organization, some sort of disciplining group that is able to democratically and legitimately decide these issues. So I wanted to raise that. Maybe before um, we move on, you could talk a little bit about the state of the war itself, how the Russian military military is doing, where it seems to be. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Russia changing its war aims or ramping up. What's your take on what's actually going on? So they're still, they still seem to be um, in the early phases of this uh, war in the East, this effort to uh, secure the Donbass and expand beyond that into other parts of Eastern Ukraine and Southern Ukraine. I, I, my sense of what's happening on the ground is the Russians are making 
some slow progress. Uh, they may still be a little tentative. Uh, they seem to be focusing more on airstrikes, missile strikes, on Ukrainian military assets, on sort of strategic assets like uh, rail yards and things of that nature. So, you know, I don't, I don't see a, a lot of like major developments happening here. They are also, it looks like, attempting to undertake uh, something we've talked about before, this pincer movement to try and cut off the bulk of the Ukrainian military, which is still deployed in the East. Uh, but that's going very slowly, too, and I think maybe too slowly at this point to really, <clears throat> uh, for there to be much danger of that happening anytime soon. Uh, so the place that's been getting the most attention has been the city of Mariupol, which is located in Donetsk Oblast. It's an important port city on the Azov Sea. Uh, Russia has now taken that city. We, I think we talked about this last week. They've taken the city, uh, with the exception of the Azovstal uh, steelworks located kind of on the outskirts of the city where there's still some hundreds, maybe a couple thousand uh, combatants uh, putting up a fight along with some unknown number of civilians holed up in this uh, this facility. Uh, the Russians last week said that they weren't going to continue attacking the Azovstal facility. They were simply going to leave it besieged, but it sounds like they're still attacking it uh, from, from what I've seen this week. Um, there have been negotiations on potentially an evacuation of that facility, at least for the civilians fighting there. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was in Moscow earlier this week and claims that he got Vladimir Putin to agree in principle, and you got to put in principle in quotes because that that's meaningless unless it's put into practice, uh, but got him to agree in principle to a, an evacuation that would be organized by the UN and the Red Cross, uh, but I've seen no indication uh, that there's been any progress in actually implementing that. Uh, the other thing uh, of note, uh, well, a couple other things of note here in terms of the war itself, there have been uh, a an escalating number of attacks on uh, sites uh, along the Russian border with Ukraine. So inside Russia, things like ammo depot, ammunition depots, um, oil facilities. Uh, Thanks you for know, specifying what ammo was, was there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, well, ammo depot sounds dumb, so I, I, I regretted that immediately <laughs> and changed depot. it to ammunition. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, ammunition depots, uh, oil facilities, things that uh, uh, would be used to support the Russian invasion are, are seem to be coming under attack. There's some sketchy uh, evidence of Ukrainian drones being used in, in these attacks. Um, the Ukrainians haven't claimed responsibility, but I think, you know, an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky all but, you know, kind of winkingly, uh, you know, said this is, uh, you know, karma for the Russians or something like that uh, earlier this week. So it's clear that, that they're carrying out these attacks. This is a really important step that the Ukrainians have taken. They've been doing this now for a while, but certainly it's sends a message that to the Russians that to, from Ukraine that we can bring this war to you. Uh, the Russians seem somewhat put out by this. Uh, I'm not sure why they seem put out. Frankly, it seems like this is something you should expect uh, to happen in a situation like this. But uh, that is going on. I haven't seen reports of casualties. Like, uh, well, I've seen some reports of people being injured in these strikes. Uh, I haven't seen reports of people being killed, but some of them do seem to have strayed uh, uncomfortably close to civilian population areas, houses being damaged and things like that uh, that, that uh, you don't like to see. 
Uh, on a somewhat similar note, uh, there was, I think, last Friday, so it would have been the day after we recorded uh, last week's episode, a Russian general uh, named Rustav Minikhaev, who uh, was speaking to, I think, some kind of you know defense industry event or think tank event or something like that. Uh, they're uh, just like us, Russians. They're just yeah, like us. Yeah, exactly. They're just like us. Uh, he laid out an interesting uh, kind of detailed uh, war aim, basically, which was that uh, the Russians intend to conquer all of southern Ukraine, uh, all the way across from uh, the Donbass through uh, Kherson Oblast, which they already control, uh, Odessa, uh, and all the way to, to Moldova, where they would link up with the, the, trans, the region called Transnistria, which is another, like the, the Donbass separatists, this is another kind of Russophilic separatist region that is broken away from Moldova and claims independence. This is a, I mean, it was a fascinating statement. I don't know if it actually reflects what, what the Russians are thinking. Uh, it very well might. Um, if it does, it's sort of an interesting insight into where they're at and, and what they're, they, you know, how long this war could go on, because that's, that's going to be a, a tough, uh, a long haul for them to, uh, to try to achieve something like that. Uh, Interestingly, since then, since these comments uh, emerged, there have been reports of a number of explosions uh, in the Transnistria region. Believe the explosions were the result of rocket attacks. Moldova says it's concerned by the incident, which appears to be aimed at stoking tensions in a region over which it has no control. And again, no casualties, but there have been things targeted like um, an ammunition depot, for example, uh, the the offices of the quote-unquote interior ministry of the uh, breakaway Transnistria Republic. And nobody seems to know who's responsible for these. The authorities in Transnistria are suggesting that uh, they've seen drones coming in from Ukraine carrying out attacks. Uh, the Ukrainians are accusing Russia and the, tra the Transnistrian separatists of uh, trying to mount like a false flag operation that would justify widening the war. Uh, the United States has said, we don't really know what's going on here. We're kind of paying attention to it, but we, we can't say anything at this point. Uh, so that's that's interesting, worth watching. Uh, it's It's kind of, astonishing to me that either side at this point would be interested in widening the conflict. I guess, you know, the, the separatists themselves could be taking matters into their own hands, or maybe the Russians view Transnistria as a potential second front to open up, or, uh, you know, at this point, maybe third front. I don't know, however you want to define it. So I, I, I don't know. I don't really know what's going on here, but it's it's uh, clearly something is going on, and it's, it's definitely worth uh, kind of paying attention to. So, Derek, is Vladimir Putin on the verge of being um, cooed out of office? No, he's he's dying of several diseases. Was the story this week? There was a video of him meeting with uh, <laughs> Sergei Shoyu, his defense minister, and I guess he was gripping the table in a weird way and kind of slouched oh, yes, over, and everybody, right, yeah. everybody it decided like he was that, constipated a bit. Yeah. yeah, everybody decided that he's now dying of of multiple diseases. So, uh, best wishes to him, friend of the pod. Uh, you know, speedy <laughs> recovery and all that. Yeah. Uh, why don't we move on now to food insecurity in the Horn of Africa, which I know was a topic you wanted to discuss. Yeah, so this is um, partly a, a knock-on effect of the, the Ukraine war, but um, the uh, International Monetary Fund is the latest of several of the pod. international <laughs> organizations, another friend of the pod, yeah, uh, to talk about uh, just the, the massive 
food shock that is happening in sub-Saharan Africa. And I, I don't mean to lump an entire region together like that, but it really is, you know, kind of across the region. Uh, th- some of the worst effects have been seen uh, in the Horn of Africa. Relief Web just, um, you know, did something earlier this month suggesting saying that uh, there are about 14 million people across Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya who are in a pretty dire need of food assistance. Um, and there, there are a number of, of causes, especially in that specific region uh, obviously the the continuing war in Ethiopia uh, civil war really against the government uh, uh, against the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, there's been a drought in that region for quite some time now uh, if you've paid attention over the last couple of years you know that the Horn of Africa has been hit by uh, like really massive much larger than usual locust kind of uh, uh, outbreaks that have destroyed crops and uh, you know left people without a, a great stock pile of food. Uh, the Ukraine war obviously is affecting global food prices as well as supplies. Um, the Indonesian government just announced uh, it's capping palm oil exports, which is going to uh, further exacerbate global food uh, challenges. Uh, but it's particularly hitting hard in, in these regions. And it, I mean, this, you know, there are obviously other places where, where these effects are being felt, parts of the Middle East and you know, even, I think, uh, parts of Latin America. But but seems to be particularly hard hit in, in the Horn of Africa and across kind of sub-Saharan Africa. And I don't have any uh, big conclusion to draw here other than to call people's attention to it, which I think is is important. Thank you very much, Derek. Um, let's move to the elections. There was a big election in France. So why don't we talk about that? Uh, yeah. So finally, um, you know, after all the, the, the fussing and feuding uh, on Sunday, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen had their runoff, uh, which Macron won relatively comfortably. He took, I think, somewhere around 58% of the vote, which, you know, is in, in most any context is a, uh, you know, something approaching a landslide. Uh, there is some caveat here in that Le Pen being a far right borderline fascist, uh, has now made it to the runoff in two straight French elections and has improved from from the first one to the second one. So that's uh, a somewhat troubling trend line. But, uh, you know, who knows, maybe uh, French centrists will be able to find a candidate in uh, 2027 who is not as completely off-putting as Macron is. Uh, How somebody dare who can, you, Derek? So, somebody who can go <laughs> out in public. That's my uncle and, we're talking about. <laughs> Um, you know, somebody who can go out in public and not reflexively announce a benefit cut every time he sees a, uh, another human <laughs> being would be nice, maybe strategically smart. I just voted for someone I, I disagree with and I don't really appreciate. So, so you voted for Macron? <laughs> well, I'm not supposed to say that, but yes. So that's, uh, you know, I guess, you know, freedom and democracy are safe for another five oh, years, I God. guess. because we was worried about those two bad lost. boys. Yeah. Um, there is, there will be attention now on the French parliamentary election in June, where both Le Pen uh, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the the leftist candidate who almost surprised everybody and, and upset Le Pen, got into the runoff against Macron. Uh, they're both gunning to maybe, I mean, Mélenchon has been very open about this, that he wants to be prime minister. So he wants uh, to see, you know, leftists, 
win a majority in the new parliament so that he can uh, kind of be a check on Macron. Uh, polling, there hasn't, I haven't seen much polling on this race yet, but <clears throat> there are a couple of things to watch. One is a, recent, a poll that just came out this week that says like 60% of French voters do not want parliament to be friendly to Macron. They want an opposition-led uh, parliament, which would seem to work in uh, either Mélenchon or Le Pen's favor, although they may wind up kind of splitting the opposition vote, I guess. Um, there's another poll that came out a little bit earlier this month that suggested that Macron would, in fact, uh, have a relatively easy path to a majority. His en marche uh, party could form a coalition with the center-right uh, Repu- Republican Party, uh, French Republican Party. Uh, and, you know, if they were able to do that, and th- those two parties are not necessarily on entirely the same page, but they're not that far off uh, from one another. And if they were able to do that, they would probably emerge with a, a fairly comfortable majority. So, uh, you know, so capital makes its uh, old alliance with the far yeah. right. I'm glad to yeah. see that things. Uh, yeah, I mean, Republican Party change, but they're always like the center same. right is is sort of <laughs> subjective here. I and mean, the Republicans have really moved to the right to try and uh, pull the rug out from under Le Pen and and, and other far right kind of right. movements That's in France. So yeah. uh, they they are you know on the right definitely, but uh, uh, yeah, I know I, I, it's it's uh, it's a natural alignment because really Macron is on the right too. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, he's he's right wing by by now. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, so why don't we finish with the elections in Slovenia? And Derek, I always thought that a good Slovenian candidacy would be Slavoj Žižek and Melania Trump. I feel like they should both go to Slovenia and just run and take over the country. <laughs> like it's a ticket or something. Yeah, yeah there, there should go. be a ticket. The Žižek oh Trump ticket. I think they would do really well. But uh, what what happened there? And we'll end on that. Uh, so this was. Um, Somewhat of a surprise. Uh, also on Sunday, Janez Janša's Slovenian Democratic Party, his far-right party, uh, lost uh, the parliamentary election to an environmentalist coalition called the Freedom Movement, uh, led by Robert Golob. I'm, I'm, I know I'm probably mispronouncing his name. I apologize for that. The, the outcome was not Entirely surprised because polling had indicated that the freedom movement might have been a slight favorite kind of heading into the election. But the outcome, I mean, they won pretty handily. I think they took like 34% of the vote and, and the Slovenia, the SDS, uh, the Slovenian Democratic Party only took about 24%. So, uh, the margin of victory was somewhat surprising. Uh, freedom movement, uh, will have, I think, 40 seats. Uh, in the National Assembly, which is a 90-seat body, so they only need another five uh, for a majority. They shouldn't have any trouble uh, getting those from other kind of center-left uh, parties. Uh, so Yansha is is out of power, and again, it's a victory for freedom and democracy. He was a very uh, Victor Orban-esque figure, uh, or Donald Trump-esque figure. He was known for kind of uh, ham-fisted use of Twitter and, and being kind of a, a thuggish presence online Hold, wait, in addition to out, his... Derek. Politics. Say what you will about Donald Trump, but he is a master at Twitter. He is not <laughs> ambitious. <laughs> that right, is all right. Picasso's yeah, you got me there. Yeah. Okay, you got please. me there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, he was very kind of outspoken on Twitter and, and very far right. And I think uh, probably overplayed his hand. I, I, I saw some analysis of this that suggested, um, you know, he tried to govern like Orban without Orban's. Uh, Popular Force support, personality. which was, yeah. uh, well, not personality, but popular support. I mean, Yansha, this government, uh, it's Yansha's third term, third stint 
uh, as prime minister, he's sort of uh, uh, been successfully, successively moving further and further right. But this time it came about uh, in 2020 uh, with the collapse of, of the government of then prime minister Marianne Charetz. So it wasn't through an election. There was no like obvious mandate of, you know, like groundswell of Slovenians saying we want Janis Janša to be our prime minister. We want the Slovenian Democratic Party to run the government. And it was a, so it was a minority government. It was a conservative minority government. And I think he kind of decided that he had a mandate to be this very far right polarizing figure when in fact he, he never really turns had out. that popular <laughs> mandate. Yeah, as it turns out. Uh, so yeah, that's, that was another uh, sort of victory that um, you know the the center centrists uh, are going to claim as a as a you know great victory for freedom and democracy, um, and you know I mean Yancha was was a pain in the ass so good riddance. Looking forward to the Ann Applebaum article about that and and Melania and Slavoj uh, we here at American yeah, Prestige call see us. an opening we'll, we'll, for we'll you. work something out yeah 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 we we could move from the Kristoff campaign to the Zizek Trump campaign I think that would yeah, be there a good. You go. A good move. Well, anyway, uh, listeners, thank you so much. Please enjoy our interview with the great Emma Ashford, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to yet another American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison, and we're very excited to invite our friend Emma Ashford to the podcast. Emma is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and she is what we like to call at AP a DC insider, one of our friends of the pod who is friend in the Beltway. Automatic friend of the pod. Automatic friend of the pod who, who is living that life, as as they say. Um, and, and we thought we'd take this episode to get a sense of the conversations that have been roiling D.C., particularly since uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the fault lines that have been developing within the policy community, uh, within the think tank community in particular, uh, and all of those good things. So before I send it to Emma, I just want to do a quick thing. I think it's really important to be aware of what the so-called foreign policy establishment or the blob or the think tank community or the military intellectual complex, what's going on there? Because foreign policy in, in the United States is really the purview of a relatively small number of people. So for all the Sturm and Drang you see on Twitter, it's, it's a relatively coherent community, I think, that actually makes and implements American foreign policy. Um, so being aware of where power actually lies, who gets to decide what is even thinkable is, I think, really important. And I, I'd like to start doing that even more on the show. Um, so after that preamble, Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here today. Um, so why don't we just start? So there have been a lot of discussions in, in the strategic community in the last two years about what is the future of U.S. grand strategy. Um, I, I think that the decision made by basically everyone was you need to combat the quote-unquote rise of China. There are various ways to do that. But the invasion of Ukraine, it seems like, you know, it, it's it's a return to the past, back to the past a little bit with focusing on Russia. So maybe you could give us a sense of what you think are the fault lines, the major discussion points, your own view, whatever you think uh, works best. Great. Yeah. Well, well, thanks so much for having me. I mean, I guess let me start by giving you kind of three big points about the debate in DC, and then we can dive into whichever of those interests you. Um, so the, the first is that, yeah, this, this came as a real shock to many inside DC who were, you know, pivoting towards China or whatever we're calling it these days. Um, you know, it's my understanding that some of the key national security documents, like the National Defense Strategy, basically had to be rewritten to accommodate the, the 
Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so the notion that America might have to start paying attention to Europe again um, came, came as a surprise, I think, to a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S is actually going to go back into Europe. And we can talk a little bit more about that if you're, if you're interested. There's still a lot of pressure on the China front. Yeah, no, so I was, I'm writing this piece right now and I basically read everything that the major think tanks um, have written about China in the last, you know, two, three years. And yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's interesting because in the discourse, Ukraine has really occupied such a central place, but I think in grand strategic terms, I think the United States is going to still remain focused by far on East Asia. And I think that that this the, the, the situation in Europe is, is not going to be the major focus of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, and it's it's notable, I think, you know, that the Biden administration clearly wanted to like park European security and not particularly pay attention to it so that they could complete this pivot to Asia and all the pressure in DC was on, you know, pressuring European countries to commit to Asia, not to commit to Europe. Um, and, and so I think, you know, if there's something that's changed, it's not as much the direction of US foreign policy as it is the conversations about, you know, what it is Europe's got to do. So where do you see the various constituencies or, or how would you define the various constituencies in D.C. right now with the people who, who basically make their careers as strategic thinkers or analysts? Yeah. And I mean, th there's a couple of weird things about this debate, um, you know, for the last I mean, so I've, I've been in D.C. about seven years. And during that time, you know, there's been a, a really pronounced sort of split between people that want a more realist, restrained, progressive foreign policy and people that back the sort of classical liberal internationalist primacist approach to the world. The Ukraine conflict has scrambled that to some extent, um, you know, for, for two reasons. One is that this conflict is a little weird in that the sort of moderate or reasonable restrained position and the mainstream position are pretty close to being the same thing right, with some caveats. Um, and then there are certainly people that want to go much further, but the mainstream kind of accepts that those people are a little crazy. And so that is, you know, calling for no-fly zones, calling for, you know, using airstrikes on Russia, you know, so everybody sort of, I think, acknowledges that's not happening. So there's, there's not really as much division on this issue as you might think. But then the second part that I find really interesting is having, you know, my, my own biases. I'm kind of a realist. I, I've, you know, been around this kind of restraint community for, for a number of years now. Um, and there's some real fault lines emerging within the community because of this conflict, um, you know, to, to vastly oversimplify between progressives, I think, who haven't quite given up on the notion of universal human rights and the U.S. protecting those, you know, so like responsibility to protect stuff, um, and the more realist-oriented folks um, who are saying, no, from a national interest point of view, you know, we definitely shouldn't be getting involved in Ukraine. And so these lines have all got very scrambled over the last couple of months. And I'd like to say that maybe this isn't well represented in D.C. <laughs> at all. But uh, I would like to, uh, um, you know, I think I'm a left-wing, you know, restrainer. I, I don't think, I never thought that was a great term, but here we are. <laughs> um, because ideally, I wouldn't want, just want to restrain U.S. power, but I'd want to, you know, really um, get rid of the base of it to a, to a large degree. And I think you know, there's, there's another way you could approach it, which is the criticism of the military-industrial complex. You know, that sort of protecting human rights, you know, might, might be all well and good from a, a theoretical perspective, but what that actually involves is strengthening a military industrial complex that I think has empirically and historically done so much damage to the world. And it'll be interesting. And I think that is, that is a, 
by far a minoritarian position, but I do think it's it's held increasingly amongst people under 35. You know, people who didn't go through the responsibility to protect debates of the 90s and 2000s who are much more skeptical about the U.S. power, uh, of uh, much more skeptical about the use of U.S. power, just qua U.S. power. And it'll be interesting to see how that goes because the restraint community is very interesting because there are restrainers who basically want the United States to be hegemonic in East Asia from now and forever. You know, the realists, who I actually think are... Um, the big realist, uh, like like a Mersheimer, um, Mersheimer, I think, is the one who really advocates that position more forcefully than anyone. And I, to me, that seems a little bit out of touch um, with the with the next generation of of basically foreign policy heads who are going to come once the boomer generation passes from the scene, however that may happen. So I was wondering, do you see um, a division in generations? Because I actually think that's really crucial when you're talking about U.S. foreign relations, because historical experience is so crucial to shaping how people understand the world. And people who came up as the Cold War was ending is very are very different from people who came up in the aftermath of the Iraq War. So I'd love to go uh, dig a little deeper on the d- internal divisions of restraint, if that would be possible. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, uh, you know, my one of my former colleagues when I was back when I was at the Cato Institute, um, Trevor Thrall, who's a professor at George Mason, did a whole bunch of polling work on foreign policy attitudes broken out by generation. Um, and, you know, found some very clear divisions. And you're right. It was at the time it was under 35. Now it's under 40, I would say. Um, but yeah, you do see this very pronounced difference between the kinds of military force that older Americans are willing to commit um, and the kinds of, of force that the younger generations are willing to, to commit. The interesting thing, though, is that polling did also show younger Americans still relatively supportive of military intervention when it came to humanitarian issues. And again, I think that's where this Ukraine crisis has been very difficult for a lot of a lot of people who might broadly be supportive of restraint um, because it's running smack dab into their, you know, they have this moral compass that they're looking at the world through a very moral lens and they're saying, well, we should be protecting the Ukrainians, we should be helping them protect themselves. Um, and, and again, it makes it just a little more difficult because even younger Americans tend to hold that view to some extent. And I'm curious, um, to me, the the place that this has played out, these sort of, you know, rejiggering of um, the restraint community in response to this war, the, the main place I see this playing out is in terms of the question of supplying arms to Ukraine. Um, and the, the arguments go, you know, back and forth between, um, are, is the United States prolonging the war? Is the West prolonging the war by doing this? Is it helping to shorten the war by doing this? Um, you know, I think there are arguments, there are credible arguments on, on both sides of this. So far, I think based on the course of the war, you could make the case that supplying arms to Ukraine has stymied Russian plans, has, you know, maybe forced uh, things into, you know, on the direction of a stalemate that could lead to peace talks. Uh, But I think a lot of things that aren't being talked about here uh, from the standpoint of restrainers, broadly speaking, or, you know, people who uh, have watched the last couple of decades or, you know, last three or four decades, really, of U.S. foreign policy play out, you talk about questions of, you know, what's going to happen to these weapons at the end of the war? Where are they going to go? The Pentagon admits it doesn't know. Uh, you know, you get into uh, questions of empowering, enriching, and, and thereby empowering uh, the defense industry to take even greater control over uh, foreign policy in the United States. What's your sense of how this debate has gone and, and where do you stand on, the, on this question? 
Yeah, so for myself, um, you know, I I broadly support what we've done so far in terms of arming the Ukrainians, um, mostly because I think, you know, it, it would have been a much harder argument, I think. I don't think I would have supported, for example, if the government in Kiev had collapsed in week one and we were talking about arming an insurgency in Ukraine. I'm not sure I would have supported that. Right, I think that. that's an important distinction, yeah. Yeah, but... but not, we, I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, and, and I think that the, the course of the war has gone such that we've actually seen the West have made a difference. They've made a huge difference. Um, and so, you know, in that context, I don't really have as big a problem there, even though, you know, I, I fully acknowledge that that some of these are almost certainly going to flow out of the former Soviet Union and are going to end up in Central Asia or the Middle East at some point, some of these weapons. I, I have no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, I, I do think we're seeing the growth of a narrative in Washington that I do think is quite problematic. Um, the notion that the Ukrainians can win. Um, and by that, they mean not just that the Ukrainians have won to the extent that they already have, which they have. The Ukrainians have won this war from, from the point of view of they have saved their state. But we're seeing conversations about, you know, can we give the Ukrainians the arms that will let them push Russia out of the Donbass regions they've held since 2014, that will let the Ukrainians maintain some deniability or ties over Crimea. Um, you know, and to my mind, that that strikes me as just incredibly overly optimistic. And so I'm really worried because I think, you know, there's this victory narrative that's picking up in Washington um, and that's really encouraging people here to, you know, go for broke, right? Push the Ukrainians to not engage in talks, not try to find a negotiated settlement. Um, and I think that's a recipe for, for a lot of futile conflict. I mean, I think you can go further than that even. And I mean, this is sort of nut picking social media, but you, you see increasingly, I think, um, and even from some quote unquote reputable voices, I'm thinking of a certain former U.S. ambassador to Russia uh, under Obama, Michael McFaul, just this sort of narrative that not only can Ukraine win in the sense that you're describing, you can take back Crimea, take back the Donbass, but th that the war won't be over until like Vladimir Putin is in leg irons at the Hague. Um, and it's just, I, I, yeah, I think you're, you're right. It's setting up an expectation. I mean, even just today, I think, or, or yesterday, uh, you had Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense in Kiev meeting with Zelensky talking about, uh, you know, U.S. plans to, or the U.S. hope that Russia will be uh, kind of depleted by this war, which is, I don't know, shades into like we're we're using Ukraine to achieve uh, some bigger policy aim or something like that in, in, a, in a, a way that I find I find uncomfortable. I mean, if we're perfectly honest, like that has already been achieved. The Russian military um, apparently was nowhere near as competent as we'd assumed, um, but you know it, it has been dramatically reduced by this invasion. So the Russians are already far weaker, and the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians did that for for themselves, for us as well. And so you know, I, I don't see how one gets from that place, however, to talking about you know, we need to permanently weaken Russia, we need to cut Russia off from, from every part of the world, we need to, you know, in order to ensure this never happens again, we've got to get rid of the regime in the Kremlin, you know, that's where it starts to cross the line for me into sort of, you know, we're not, it's not talking about ending the war, it's not talking about securing Ukraine or securing Europe, it's talking about, you know, punishing Russia and trying to end the regime in the Kremlin, that's where for me it steps into something much more forward-leaning and problematic.
Yeah, the reason that I think people do that is they like romantic things. And to be an American citizen is to live in an unromantic world where everything is collapsing around you and things don't have legitimacy. And what this war did, it reminded me very much of the immediate 9-11 period. It gave people meaning in a world that they feel is essentially meaningless. This is why you have people who have never thought about Russia or Ukraine spending weeks on the internet, you know, uh, furiously talking about it because it, it provides something romantic, literally, in the early 19th century uh, phrase of the term. It provides you access to something that is beyond yourself and something that you believe is really important. So to me, that's what explains it. Essentially, it, it provides meaning in a meaningless world in like a real sense. But Emma, this is I, I'd like to have a question for you because I, I really enjoy having realists on because I think we agree about a lot and then we disagree about about maybe structure. It's almost like realist. The realist framework doesn't allow you, I think, to do the most important thing, which is to focus on the domestic politics of the country. It, it provides a great insight into geostrategic discussion, and, and it provides a very powerful tools for understanding at the most fundamental level why states act the way they do. But then if, if we're serious about restraint and getting rid of primacy, then it does seem to me like you have to attack the domestic structures that actually formulate these things. So as, as, as a realist, what's your take on that? Because to me, as a leftist, that's the number one thing. You got to prevent these weapons from being made, being sent around the world and making money for people and providing jobs for Congress members and things like that. So what do you see the interconnections there between domestic and foreign policy? Yeah, so I, I consider myself to be what, what I would call a neoclassical realist, um, which is perhaps a, a little too nitty gritty for anybody non-academic listening. Um, but that's basically a school of realism that tries to integrate non-structural insights into structural theories. And so, you know, in a, in a nutshell, um, you know, I think structural factors predominate, right? So the fact that Russia is a much more powerful country than Ukraine, they could invade Ukraine. Um, but I think domestic factors matter below that level. And I think, you know, this war has shown, you know, some things that, that actually sort of coming out of my own work, we've seen in Russia, domestic politics shaped by the pathologies of being an oil exporting, oil producing resource cursed state, right? The military very ineffective, the leadership very personalistic, making all these misjudgments, you know, and then in Ukraine, which, you know, not a full democracy, but was developing in that you know, way has been becoming more consolidated since 2014. We've seen better governance, more national sort of sentiment and nationalism than we might have expected. And so those domestic factors clearly make a difference. And so for me, you know, I, I do think structural factors predominate, um, but I, I don't throw the domestic baby out with the bathwater the way, the way some folks, particularly John Mearsheimer's theories do. So then let's bring that to the United States then, because to me, that's why I'm skeptical of the weapons, not because, like you said, I think you're right. This isn't Syria. You know, this isn't arming insurgent groups. This is arming a, a formal military effectively that is still operating. But again, the U.S. is serving as the creditor of the world, as it will, through arms dealers. And to me, that's a major driving force of the continuation of this entire structure that you'll need to attenuate at the very least to, to actually make restraint a real policy, not just, which, which I think it was and still is to a large degree, is getting out of the Middle East. You know, I think restraint effectively meant in the last 10 years, like, we got to get out of the Middle East. And what comes after that? TBD. But if you're serious about restraining U.S. power and returning and, and making the United States like a quote unquote normal power, not the global hegemon, it seems that in these instances that are very, very difficult, that you have to be worried at the very least um, about the sending of weapons. And Derek, I don't know if you want to maybe 
um, agree or disagree with that because I'm not sure if I made my position clear. But do you see what I'm saying? Well, I think that's, uh, I mean, to me, that that's all part of, yeah, I mean, there's there's a dichotomy here between do you want the United States to have this power just in general? And do you want it to exercise that power that it, it does have uh, in this one sympathetic case, which is going to mean that it will continue to exercise that power in other perhaps less sympathetic cases? And that where I where I have a real concern is not, um, is specifically in terms of the defense industry and every, you know, weapons shipment, every $800 million tranche of howitzers that goes over there is money in Raytheon's pocket. It's money in, you know, General Dynamics pocket that they can then use, turn around and use on lobbying to get the, the defense budget up to, you know, 900 billion or a trillion, uh, per year. And it's just a never ending cycle. And I think this, this, you know, has greatly empowered that aspect of things to, to po- probably detrimental way, you know, to detrimental effect in the future, even, even though I, I acknowledge that in this particular case, it seems to be doing some good. And there's a, a, a you know, a protagonist here that we're trying to help. And it's all very kind of tugging at uh, people's sentiments. I get that, but, but there are long-term ramifications. Yeah, so my my boss, Chris Preble, wrote a book, um, gosh, must have been 20 years ago at this point, called The Power Problem. Um, and his his argument about U.S. foreign policy is, is broadly similar to what you're saying here, is, right? America has the power, it's going to use it, right? And sometimes that will work out, and sometimes it won't. Um, the reason that I think that structure kind of predominates here and, and that still matters more than the domestic politics is the way I view American foreign policy in the last 30 years. It's been a case of America pursuing, you know, very similar aims to the ones we did during the Cold War in very similar ways with alliances and military presence and things, but with no constraints on us, right? Since 1991, there has been no other superpower, no other great power, no one to push back, no one to balance against us. Um, And so the US has just done a lot of things. It's basically done, we've done whatever we wanted to do, domestic politics predominated. um, And I think we're moving out of that world. And so I think that, you know, um, it would be nice if you could rein those things in domestically, but but my sort of model of, of how this works in reality is that when we start to see some of those constraints imposed on us by the international system, um, that domestic politics will eventually come in line. And so, you know, to, to sort of give you one example, I'd say, well, right now there are people in D.C. saying, well, defense spending is not enough. We can't combat China and Russia at the same time. We're going to need to raise it to five, six, seven percent of GDP. Um, I mean, I don't think domestic politics is going to bear that, right? No matter how sort of distorted the military industrial complex is and how many senators they have, people aren't going to accept that. So, you know, that's what I mean when I say I think structure predominates and hopefully brings domestic politics along with it. So do you think we could get restraint without basically getting rid of the military industrial complex? Because to me, one the, the 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 military Keynesianism of the American state is fundamental, you know, and this is where I think realism fails. Um, I think that they, they come together. They, they and it's interesting that realism arises as an intellectual tradition with along with the military industrial complex, effectively, because I think that provides, you know, just to, to to be vulgar Marxist about it, that provides the material basis for realism to be a thing one to get first to get a purchase in the universities and then to over the next five decades slowly make its way into dc but like what is the realist case on the military industrial complex 
Or what is Emma's case on it? And what is Emma's take on it, if not realism? Because I think realism, this is a gap in, in the theoretical literature. No, I think this is a gap in, I think this is a gap actually generally in international relations theory. I, I think, um, you know, you're a historian. Historians, I think, have done a better job on, on that side of, of things. Um, you know, I, I will say that I think since I've been in DC, um, I have um, been continually sort of impressed and appalled by the extent to which sort of major defense contractors, you know, fund think tanks, fund endowed chairs places, um, you know, the system, you know, is is worse than I would have assumed back when I was in academia. Um, but I don't really, as I say, I don't really have a good model of how that sort of drives U.S. foreign policy other than perhaps socialization. Um, and I, th I think, you know, the, the, you can certainly talk about how socialization in Washington, career pressures, um, you know, donor pressures, but particularly, you know, the, the, the pressure not to say something crazy if you want to get hired in the future, um, to stick within that mainstream of, of um, sort of foreign policy thought, that I think does have a really um, profound effect on some of the views that we see. Because I, I frequently get younger folks in the foreign policy community coming to me and saying, oh, you know, I... I agree with you. Um, I just don't want to say it because I don't want to get fired. Um, and, you know, it, to, to my mind, it's, it's kind of terrible that that's where we are. Um, and I worry that with those folks that, you know, 20 years from now, when they actually make it into positions of authority, by that point, they will have forgotten that they ever agreed with me. So I, I you know, I'm never sure how much of that to place on the military industrial complex. But I do think DC has this profound socialization problem on foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in that particular context, sorry, Derek, just very quickly, I think that that would be the other structure, the concomitant structure, which has received much, le much less attention, which is the military intellectual complex, which essentially serves as the brains of the foreign policy establishment, because the United States effectively outsources <laughs> a lot of its uh, foreign policy thinking. You know, it, the, the, the vaunted public-private partnership of the 1940s has basically resulted in this creation of this techno-scientific structure that is, like, not meaningfully democratically accountable, that is the this network of think tanks. And so I think that's absolutely important. And I think they, they, it, it, this is like kind of the Patrick Porter work. I'm not sure Patrick would, um, and it's kind of interesting. Oh, I'd love to get your take on this. It's interesting that in the last 20 years, all of a sudden realists are writing books about the second image, whether it's the Israel lobby or the false promise of international order or, or, or Mersheimer's liberal delusions book. Right. And, and so it, it does seem to me that there's been at least a unconscious attempt to reckon with the second image, as it were, which basically for non-IR specialists refers to the domestic political structure, regime, um, what have you. And so I think it, it, that is, I, I, I totally take the point. I think I was using military industrial complex really as a shorthand for like the domestic, the relatively coherent domestic communities that actually shape U.S. foreign policy. That was really more a comment than a question. Sorry, Derek, please. Emma, I'd like to get your um, take on how the on the role that the media plays here, because um, I, I I swore off cable news a long time ago, but I have I have to admit, like you know, I was visiting my folks last week, and they've got MSNBC on all day, and uh, so I was you know exposed to some of the Ukraine coverage, and it's uh, it strikes me with you know in terms of what you 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 just said, you get young people who come to you and say, you know, I'm I'm afraid for career reasons to really speak my mind. And then you wonder if that's going to get 
drummed out of them by the time they're in a position where they don't have to worry about that necessarily anymore, where they're senior enough that they could speak their mind. But it strikes me that the incentive uh, continues even at that level. If you want to be uh, one of the you know rotating cast of a dozen experts who gets to go on cable news and talk about the Ukraine war, uh, and you know hawk your book or whatever it is that you're you know you're trying to do you still have to adhere to a certain like mainstream way of thinking. Um, and it, it really feels like, uh, you know, it's just sort of this interchangeable group of people who, who get to come and go during the day and they're on this show and then they take an hour off and they come back for the next show. And it's like the incentive is still there to hew to this, this line that gets you seen and gets you noticed. I'm, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, to sort of to, to Danny's point about you know realists starting to emphasise the second image. I mean, I I do think again it's back to this point about unipolarity, and and some of the best work on this in IR was Nuno Montero's unipolar. Um, Unipolar Power, Unipolar Moment. I'm forgetting what the title of the book was. Um, but it's a really great book. And he talks basically about, again, how, you know, just being so powerful as a state with no one to push back on you um, not only opens up a bunch of possibilities, but also increases the salience of other factors. And so I think that's why you've seen realists sort of move into the second image is because under conditions of unipolarity, you know, domestic politics becomes more important. Um, and that includes things like, like the media or like socialization in D.C., um, you know, and I think the, the media, I guess, I'll say two things. The first is, you're right, cable news is still extremely hawkish. You know, I, I don't know whether that is just, you know, the people that they draw from as commentators or whether it's something perhaps more unique to war reporting, which is kind of what I've been thinking the last few months uh, in the Ukraine crisis. Um, you know, but I will say, I think the media outside of cable media has improved. Um, you know, again, in the time that I've been in D.C., you know, when I first when I first came to D.C., right, I worked at the Cato Institute, the Libertarian Think Tank, the only place I could have worked, basically, um, with my views. Um, that's no longer the case. Um, but it's also the case now that a lot of the big foreign policy publications, FP, Foreign Affairs, you know, they publish things by restrainers and realists. And they didn't really do that as much, you know, a decade ago. So we're getting more balance in the media ecosystem, just not on cable news. And I'm assuming that's because it doesn't sell. That's really interesting. And your comments about unipolarity leads me to believe that this might also be, the U.S. might be here exceptional because it's not like the concert of Europe, you know, that really serves as the basis for realist thinking, like or what the imagined concept, concert of Europe. A lot of the historian pushback on that has been like, yes, but like, look at all the colonial wars. Plus, there were a bunch of wars in Europe, Austro-Prussian, uh, Austro Franco-Prussian, uh, a lot of them involving Prussians, but also, uh, also other wars throughout the continent. But the United States, I, I think, does, you know, those two great moats really do affect U.S. security. And that's why the United States was allowed to remain relatively aloof from European affairs for the majority of its history. And that might also lead, you know, if we're talking at a theoretical level, I think domestic politics matters in every country. But even if we're talking at a theoretical level, that might leave non-structural factors to have more of an impact here because the United States is so safe, you know. And so, like, it's effectively unipolar, quote unquote, in the meaning of that term, which is that it doesn't have to risk uh, worry about its security from the beginning of its history. Um, so that's a, a, something interesting. It would be interesting for an IR scholar to sort of take a, the theoretical view and go back to 1776 um, and see going forward how that affected things. Um, but uh, 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 another question um, that I, I wanted to ask is, what would you say are the are, are the new 
bases for restraint-oriented foreign policy. So Cato has been there for a long time. I also want to mention the Institute of Policy Studies, which is sort of the left-wing version, but because the United States is a right-wing country, it was never as influential as Cato, but was there. Um, and also, more recently, you have defense priorities in the Quincy Institute. So you have basically the establishment of an institutional structure um, because people recognize this is where foreign policy is made. But So what do you see as sort of the great discussions going around in D.C.? My sense is that most people are still default liberal internationalists. I think neoconservatism is just an incredibly aggressive species of liberal internationalism when it comes down to it. But do you see that changing in any real way? What's your sense? Obviously, there are young people, but like, you know, just broadly speaking, what, what have you seen change in the last seven years, as you've alluded to already? I think, you know, th there were sort of two factors driving this. One was, you know, American failures in the last 20 years. Um, Iraq, Libya, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then the other was uh, Donald Trump, right? Who acted as a, a shock to the system, even if he didn't actually change things in many places. He was this real shock to the system, and I think it did catalyze more of a debate in D.C. Um, but I, I think where I see this debate coming down is basically everybody is trying to learn lessons from the last, let's say, at least twenty years uh, of U.S. foreign policy, but they're taking different lessons. And so, um, you know, I see, you know, in addition to the sort of restraint and realist folks who are coming from sort of coming from outside the mainstream, I also see this mainstream of foreign policy bifurcating a little, um, you know, into, unfortunately, on a partisan level, you know, into a more um, Republican, hawkish, you know, you, you could call it realist, but it's, a, it's an offensive realist, very forward leaning, um, very Jacksonian in its nature. You know, they've abandoned the, the liberal values part of liberal internationalism um, or of neoconservatism. And then, you know, we do have this kind of rump liberal internationalism, you know, that, that's exemplified, I think, by the current administration, um, which is a liberal internationalism that, at least in theory, is shorn of the worst excesses, right? They're not going to go invade another country, you know. But, you know, as we've seen with Ukraine, you can fall back into old habits. And so, you know, I don't think that new liberal internationalism is much more than just a continuation of old attitudes. A lot of talk, I want to bring in partisan now because a lot of the discussion has related to partisan. And I think foreign policy is really a sphere where, where that doesn't necessarily hold, at least when you're talking about th the think tank realm. Um, so this might bring us back to restraint, but where do you see the political tendencies? Let's let's not talk about Democrat and Republican right now, but where do you see outside of the mainstream political parties, the people who actually make foreign policy, where do you see those constituencies? How do you see those constituencies forming? What do you think is going on? I think the, the one that you hear about a lot is that, you know, the left is uniting with the right in places like the Quincy Institute and people who I don't, I, I don't think are particularly serious critics, you know, talk about a quote-unquote red-brown alliance and things like that. But where do you see the tendencies coming together in, in, in new formations? Well, I mean, I think there is still some cross-party version of, of liberal internationalism primacy 
Um, but I, I do think there's a risk there, um, much, much greater than it's been in, in the last couple of decades for, um, you know, things to basically just, you know, shift from one party to another and back and seesaw, um, you know, particularly on the question of, you know, whether, whether diplomacy is worth pursuing, whether arms control is worth pursuing, um, you know, and, and, you know, to some extent, whether norms and values should matter in foreign policy. That's the debate that, like, the, the liberal internationalist primacists are, are having. And then, you know, I think this, you're, you're right, this, this sort of realist restraint school um, also is cross-partisan, right? Um, and it's, it's sort of the most progressive wing of the, of the Democratic Party and the most, um, I'm not sure what you would call it, paleoconservative wing. Of the Republican Party. Um, but there's definite, I think, scope for cooperation there on specifically on foreign policy issues. Um, but those camps disagree on basically everything else. And so I think, you know, politically speaking, as, as much as I would like to see that become the new bipartisan consensus, I do think that it's going to be a, a challenging sell um, to, to actually get that to become a new bipartisan consensus. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leaning more towards that the Democratic Party is going to keep moving a little towards restraint and realism and the Republicans may stay very hawkish. But, you know, I can't predict the future. No, of course. Do you, my question is, another problem with the U.S. system generally is that it's so old, it's so gerontocratic. So this is my this is a big question because I feel like we haven't seen the effects of the last twenty years really be uh, embodied, right? You know, Trump was old, Biden's old, um, and and there there are people who basically had relatively mainstream views on foreign policy. I'd like to get to Trump in a second I, uh, because I think he's a really interesting case. But my question is, you know. I don't think Blinken is someone who's that different from Biden, but someone who's like, you know, 40 might be different. Do you think that we'll see a change when the system, the structure itself becomes just less literally old? I mean, I do think so. Um, and, and in part, that's because, um, you know, my, my academic background is in energy and foreign policy. So I've spent a lot of time studying um, you know, Soviet Union. I've spent a lot of time studying Saudi Arabia. You know, in both places, we saw, you know, the, the ravages of time eventually take their toll and a new generation comes in. And as we've seen in Saudi Arabia, that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, sometimes it brings in somebody a lot more capable of consolidating control, but generational shifts do have some impact. Um, as I say, my, my biggest fear is that because generational shifts are gradual, that what we might find is people that have some inclinations towards being more restrained or realist, um, you know, getting sort of pulled along by the system. Um, and eventually, by the by the time they sort of get into a position where they can make a real difference, you know, their their views are somewhat different. They've publicly said other things, or indeed that maybe there's just a self selection away from that, you know, because older generations in DC, and I don't know to what extent this is widely known outside DC, um, but really the only way to get a government job is for your boss to take you into government at a junior level, and then you know you rotate back in in subsequent administrations, and by the time you make Under Secretary of Defense or something, you know your three or four administrations further on. You don't just enter at that top level. So, you know, that in and of itself is a very problematic self-selection process if you want to change the foreign policy discourse. Yeah, and I think you see that throughout American institutions, you know, people like reproducing themselves in the next generation. Um, so this brings us naturally to Trump. So my take on Trump is that he had a lot of, you know, relatively interesting rhetoric when he was running. Um, he... <laughs> initiated a trade war with China to, to no real avail. But generally speaking, 
didn't really do much. And that either indicates two things. That indicates that Trump just didn't have the political will, or it indicates that the system could run itself, in a sense, that even without a head, the American military system could kind of just function. So I was wondering, what was what's your take on Trump as a foreign policy leader? And then what are the lessons that people are drawing from Trump in the various camps that we've been discussing for the last and you know, half hour? The military-industrial establishment will not allow us to nuke a hurricane, and I want to know why that is, because... I thought it was a great idea. <laughs> That's American Precise's position on the issue. That's right. Nuke the hurricane. <laughs> Remind me never Nuke to every hurricane in Florida. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think Trump is, I mean, just, just fascinating on one level from the point of view of foreign policy because he was basically what would happen if you take an average, not very smart American who doesn't watch a lot of news – and then you just put them in a position where they have to have views about the world. And I think a lot of the things that he said off the cuff that sounded very, very realist um, were simply because he hadn't bothered to actually learn the narratives. He was just reacting. Um, right. And, you know, that that ended up producing some very strange comments. But some of his things, like, you know, the one that I, I always come back to is, you know, he said, we shouldn't be spending all this money on NATO. Why can't those rich states spend it on themselves? This is this is something that, like, realists or restrainers or critics of NATO have been arguing for decades. And Trump just came out and said it, you know, because it was no big deal to him. He just, it was obvious. And so I do think we we should probably read something into Trump's foreign policy views about the way the American public generally approaches foreign policy. I think they, his, his views were more popular than I think we might assume. But then, you know, the, he didn't actually succeed in changing a lot in foreign policy. And where he did, it was when his own takes were aligned with his advisors. So on the question of Iran, for example, right, he was fully aligned with John Bolton on Iran, was able to, you know, pursue an incredibly hawkish policy there. But his advisors constrained him in other cases. And we know from research, from political science research, that when the principal, um, the president is less knowledgeable on foreign policy, that advisors carry more weight. And I think that's what we saw during the Trump administration was him getting constrained over and over. Um, you know, the, the most interesting question I think for me is, um, you know, what would happen in a second Trump administration? Because I think, you know, by the end of, of his administration, it was very clear that Trump knew he was being played by his advisors. And he switched them out towards the end with increasingly with people who were more aligned with his views. And so, you know, I think there was a learning process there. Um, and just, you know, to the extent that I can step back from the horror of a potential second Trump administration and say, you know, ooh, that would be academically interesting. Um, you know, I do think that we might see him, you know, bring in people that were more in line with his own views next time. That's really interesting. Would you say that any of sort of the, the strategic communities of D.C. have taken lessons from Trump or they view him as an aberration and someone not to be taken seriously. I'm talking at like the most macro level. Like what does this reveal about capital A, capital G, capital S American grand strategy? Or are they kind of pushing him to the side a little bit? Uh, I think Washington has amnesia about Trump. Um, it's been notable to me and in some ways shocking how quickly the discourse in Washington switched back after Biden was inaugurated to, you know, American leadership. 
right? Democracy versus autocracy, American leadership, we're here for the world. Um, you know, America is back. Uh, and that, that discourse America perceived is- says America never went away. That's our podcast oh, line. America is <laughs> great see. because America is good. It's good. Yeah. We both have that tattooed. I have half and Derek has <laughs> the other half on his back. And when we get together, it makes one. We haven't yet actually met in real life. So that's going to be the really, a be- really beautiful thing. <laughs> Well, that's something I didn't need to know. Um, so, but yeah, this, this discourse in Washington is really prevalent. It's, you know, people, I mean, on some level, I think people know that Trump or DeSantis or somebody like him who's different on foreign policy could come back. But they're sort of glossing over it right now. It's, it's interesting to, to note the place where actually I see this reflected much more accurately is when I talk to, um, you know, policy elites in Europe or in Asia, you know, they are very aware of this notion that perhaps someone like Trump might come back and maybe he might withdraw the US from NATO or maybe he might suddenly cut a deal with Russia, you know. So I think there's there's more awareness among foreign elites who are now hedging against the possibility that American foreign policy might change um, than there actually is in Washington among the people you would think would be most aware of it. Do you feel like Ukraine has changed that at all? My sense is that you're right. In the you know couple of first year plus of um, the Biden administration, there was a lot of talk about uh, we need to get away from depending on the United States. We need to uh, you know build a, a European defense force that doesn't rely on the U.S. because the U.S. isn't isn't reliable anymore. Trump could come back or somebody like him could be elected. But I feel like that's all gone out the window in the last uh, month and a half, basically. Um, and, you know, I mean, it may come back. Uh, but even things like, you know, the, 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 the promise, which, you know, has not come to fruition yet, that uh, from the German government that it's going to spend... Um, you know, increase its defense budget by a substantial amount. Uh, I feel like it's all funneled now back into the NATO US led order uh, kind of paradigm. I am a little concerned about where we are now. Um, I, you know, I, I do think you're right. I think in the last month or two, that has become a less prevalent viewpoint that, that Europe might be on its own. You know, I do take some hope from the fact that, you know, that, that the Germans have committed to spending, right, even if they're spending it on the wrong things, um, and that, that there is more of a conversation in Europe about this strategic autonomy stuff. Um, but but I do think there's a very real danger there, and I think, I think you're right. Um, you know, the U.S. has about 100,000 troops on the ground in Europe right now. You know, that's what we've basically dialed up to in the last couple of months. Um, And I I do think there's a real concern that if we were to maintain that there, you know, through the end of the Biden administration, if Biden were to get reelected, if that was to to sustain even further, that, that sort of the further we get away from the memory of Trump and the potential that that might change, um, more and more people in Europe are going to start seeing this as, oh, it's okay, America is back. And so that's why I think it's really, really important for the Biden administration to make clear that, you know, this is a temporary thing and that we do need to see spending increases from Europe. We need to see commitments of troops from Europe, um, that this isn't just America swooping in as it always has done. My one other question here, you know, you're you're sort of, you know, as you interact with people in the uh, think tank world and the D.C. foreign policy world, is there any in, in your, you know, in your sense, do you sense any kind of 
concern about the possibility that Trump could be reelected in 2024 or that Trumpism could be reelected in the sense of, you know, somebody like a DeSantis who uh, patterns himself after Trump or, or, you know, is there is there like none of that? Are they are people just sort of discounting that possibility um, or not thinking about it? I think it's there under the surface. Um, if you read, you know, read articles, there's always a to be sure Trump could come back line. But I, but I think people are pushing it away from for many reasons, you know, many of which might be domestic political reasons, right, that they really don't want to face up to the fact that this could happen. Um, and, and on foreign policy, as I say, because after four years of Trump, many people in sort of the Washington foreign policy establishment know that Trump is not going to be particularly conducive or supportive of, of their ideas. So that brings us, I think, to, to where we'd want to wrap up, and that's the question of NATO. Um, is NATO still Grado or is it not any longer? Are are there new discussions about what NATO is? Because I know the conventional wisdom is that this reinvigorated NATO, and that might be true in the short term, but I'm actually kind of skeptical. I wouldn't be surprised if in the medium term, this actually represents a hinge point, um, a turn toward away from NATO and towards some sort of multinational force within Europe, an intra-European uh, multinational force, which was a big topic of discussion in the 60s, um, kind of went away for the past, you know, 60 years, but it seems to me that that's likely. Am I just totally off base? What What's your take on, I guess, the short and then medium term future of NATO, at least how it's being discussed in DC? It's a great question. I mean, let me start, I guess, by stating my biases here, which is that I, I do work at the Atlantic Council. Um, and while I am not all rah-rah NATO all the time, I am one of the squishiest restrainers and that I, I do see a role for NATO going forward in protecting European security. I just want NATO to be what it was meant to be, a collective security alliance, not something where the United States does all the work, pays all the bills, and everybody else gets to free ride. So, you know, as NATO is structured right now, unfortunately, that is the reality of, of where we are. Um, and I do think you're right um, that for all the talk about NATO being reinvigorated, what may well be reinvigorated is this notion of the US role inside NATO. Um, and, and from my point of view, that's a that's a bad thing. Um, you know, the, the NATO alliance still has all the problems today that it had six months ago. You know, far too many members, too sprawling interests that don't align with one another. Um, and, you know, an America that is willing to step in and paper over those cracks with our own contributions, right? So if it comes down to it, the incentives are simply not going to be there for European states to get that act together on defense, whether it's through NATO or through some sort of EU force, um, it's not going to be there as long as America does it for them. And so that's why I think it is so, so important um, that we not just double down right now and that we continue to push European states to actually do more for their own defence. Um, because I, I think if we don't, the end result is going to be that NATO is probably going to collapse at some point under the weight of all those contradictions, probably when the US is busy and tied up in Asia doing something else, or perhaps, you know, when Trump or someone like him comes back around. So, you know, I think this is a very important period to actually make those changes um, before it becomes too late to do so. Emma Ashford of the Atlantic Council, 
Thank you so much for joining us on American Prestige. And we would love to have you back. That was a wonderful conversation. And I'd love to have you come back regularly. and We could do like updates on the blob every every few months. So thank you so much for taking the time. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, Emily. Great. Thanks for having me. Not getting a tattoo, though. 